On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with emergent strategist and social creative, Adrian Marie Brown. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's Krista. I'm so happy to meet you. So honored it's to so have you It's so good here. to meet you, Krista. Your <laughs> voice has been in my ear. Oh, that means a lot. Um, yes. That really means a lot. I, um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm kind of, well, first of all, I've had a, I've had a, a crazy few weeks and I'm kind of mm. getting back into my body. Mm. And then, um, so we both love science fiction. So sometimes do. I talk about my interview preparation technique as the Vulcan mind meld <laughs> approach. <Yes. Very> <laughs> Which deep. is I try to kind of my thoughts to your thoughts, your mind to my mind. So I yeah. just try to get inside you know, not just what somebody knows or thinks, but how they think. And yeah, I have to say, yeah. I mean, that has been just so incredible. Um, oh, just approaching <laughs> your mind, your thoughts. And um, and I have all these notes, okay. um, including a lot of your own words that I want to just, you know, offer back to you and see where you dive from there. But I also mm. really feel like this is going to... Like this interview will be characterized by emergence. It just feels oh, yes. right. And so, oh, yes. yeah. So I just, I was going to prepare myself. You know, I was like, oh, no. let me prepare. I'm going to talk to Krista. And then I was like, oh, no, you can't prepare. <laughs> you have to just be. Yeah. Um, so then I just decided to have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad you did that. And yeah. I mean, it is, I think it's my job to to be the host, right? To take your hand totally. and to ask the totally. questions that draw you out. But but I I um yeah, there's just so much here and we won't get to all of it. But we'll yeah. just we'll see yeah. what happens. Um Okay. Okay. Uh Zach is raising his finger. <laughs> yes, what does that mean? <laughs> My backup recorder is now rolling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, how about here? Okay. Yeah, totally. And actually, can I jump in and ask, Adrian? do you happen to have We Will Not Cancel Us nearby? Always, yeah. Always. Good. Okay. (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So here we are. And um, wait, where are you right now? Just physically. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> I'm going to share this with you. So okay. I was just walking around the house singing, I'm in Durham with my tortoise and I get down. <laughs> so I'm in Durham, okay. North Carolina. Got it. <laughs> I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, I lived in Detroit for the last 12 years preceding these and then yeah. moved here last summer. And I have a tortoise who's in the backyard who I just checked on and they're doing great. <laughs> and so good. we're in Durham. <laughs> well... I would love to ask you this. I, I've, I'm so curious, actually, to ask you this question that I've asked so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, how you would start to speak about, uh, however you would think about what the spiritual background of your childhood was, however you would describe that, um, looking back mm-hmm. now. 
Mm, yes. Uh, I love my spiritual childhood, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I feel, I think the big picture way to think about it maybe is like I was born into a household that was at the transition point, like on the horizon between like an evangelical Christianity um, that was, you know, very obligatory yeah. and very kind of shame and judgment, <laughs> you know, God is going to punish you and um, that kind of religiosity of, of spiritual practice. But we were at the horizon to a more direct and kind of action-based, practice-based spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents, you know, were an interracial marriage in the 70s, mid-70s. Yeah, and then, your so white, they kind of, mother was white and your father yes, was black. Yes, mother white, met in father South black, Carolina. Yeah. and met in South Carolina, fell in love mm-hmm. at Clemson University. And, but they were making a whole world right. unto themselves. And right. so we went to church. Um, my dad was in the military, and we were often in non-denominational churches on the base. But we were always really encouraged to think and to ask questions we were taken out into nature, you know. We like my parents loved to take us to parks and mm. take us to the mountains and to, you know show us like look at the world. Like that's the like if I was going to say what are the most persistent spiritual practices, it was probably gratitude and compassion. Like we were mm. always like, wow, <laughs> we get to be here. Wow, like mm. just be amazed by this world and travel and be curious and see it all. And then, you know, when people would mistreat us. Um, or when we would encounter, you know, intense racism and other things, there was so much, like, there was a compassion, you know, of just like, mm. oh, that's on them, <laughs> you know, mm. like, that's, they're struggling, you know, they're struggling, but we're safe, we love each other, we're good, you know. Wow, what strength, and, what strength that was yeah. that you endowed with. Um, yeah. You know, you wrote something, I believe this is during the pandemic on your blog, about your grandfather your white mm-hmm. Christian evangelical mm-hmm. grandfather. Um, Fred Mathis. Mm-hmm. And you said, you, I just want to read this back. It was so beautiful. I, he, he, he passed away. Is that right? Just yeah. in this time. He wrote, yeah. there was a long time I wrestled with how to relate to this six foot two white Christian evangelical hunting horse riding man. <laughs> I, his thick interracial queer outspoken radical granddaughter who grew up traveling the world. But we made our peace with each other a while ago beyond all of our labels. We found common ground in the fact that we were led by our spiritual experience of the world. Yeah. So just say a little bit more about that, what that, 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 that generative s- spiritual experience was that you shared with him. Yeah. So, you know, he grew up like Bible thumping, <laughs> you know, okay. you were expected to go door to door and really make sure everybody knew about Jesus and like that everybody had an opportunity to get get on board. Um, and he gave everyone, actually at his funeral, people were, everyone was holding up their copies of the 700 promises that Jesus made to us all. Mm-hmm. Like he had this little book that he would buy for everyone. So when I came out to him, when I came out to my grandparents, they initially kind of cut me off. You know, they were like, don't come, <laughs> don't come around here no more. But my grandfather, the same as when my mother came to him and said, I've married a black man. My grandfather, his his root in love and his root in Christianity was deeper than even the socialization of hatred and small mindedness. Mm-hmm. And so that always came through. So I I knew, I was like, if I can just look at him, if I can be in his presence, I know that he'll he'll sense my spiritual well-being, 
Mm. Right. He had Mm. a real ability to tell that. So I went to see them down in South Carolina after a period of, of staying away. And it was awkward. It was hard. But he immediately, you know, we were just sitting together. He took me and he hugged me and we sat together and we talked and we just at one point just stood up and were looking at each other and as children of God. Hmm. That's the only way I can describe it. It's just, you know, and I said to him, I'm like, I am a child of God. I am a divine being and the work I'm doing is divine work. And Mm -hmm. it may look different from what you're doing, but I think it's the same work, (laughs) you know? Um, And we, he just held me and there was such peace between us. There was such peace between us. And so when he passed, you know, I knew we were at good. Mm-hmm. I knew we were at peace. And I felt a blessing in that, you know, that he was able to see that in me across all the barriers that his his shaping had set up, you know, that, yeah. that would make it so that, that was hard to see. Um, I had a grandfather like that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah. but you also, I think you wrote somewhere that he was also a Trekkie, which helped. Well, no. So he, so my grandfather was like, gosh, I'm like, I guess TV wise, he watched Westerns. (laughs) He was like, he was always walking around outside. Like literally he would walk into a field and horses would come run to him. The dogs (laughs) would come run to him. Like he was a man, like he was a man of earth Hmm. and of God. Hmm. But my dad, dad. my dad was the Trekkie. My dad was like, we're watching Star Trek. That's the future. Let's go there. Uh, And, um, Octavia Butler, the science fiction writer, um, is such an influence um, mm-hmm. on you. And I'm going to confess here that mm-hmm. I have I, I, I have I read her a little bit a long time ago, and I have set aside the summer to delve into her. So I'm speaking oh, to you, right? I'm so jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> if how I that could is. read her work again yeah. the first time, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. everybody who's listening, you know, some people will have read her, some won't. Yeah. But so, just knowing that, you know, talk a little bit about what what she worked in you. Yeah. So, you know, she was a science fiction writer, and at the time that she was writing, you know, she would always be like, "I'm." kind of the only one, you know, the first of what she was, a black woman writing science fiction. She didn't want to be the only one, and she expressed that as well, but she really looked around and there weren't people that she could see doing it. And when I read her work, I think what opened, yeah, I think what opened up in me was all this possibility. So until reading that, I had been reading like Philip K. Dick and I'd read all the classical William Gibson and like all these other sci-fi. I loved it. You know, I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. But there was always this white male protagonist and I would try to slot myself into, (laughs) you know, the protagonist role or find a place for myself in the storyline. And then Octavia, I open up her books and the protagonist is a black girl um, and both the blackness and the the youth matter here mm-hmm. um, that it was like she was writing people who were 15 years old and who already had a sense of destiny and a sense of the world needs to change and I'm going to shape that. I'm going to be a part of that. Um, and she was very solution oriented in her writing. She was very like practical in her writing. So everything is very clear. Like you're not going to read Octavia and come away confused. You're going to read it and be like, oh, I should pack a bag so that I'm prepared 
for when the apocalypse comes and here's what I should put in it. And Hmm. like, I need to figure out how to be a human with other people, you know, because I don't know who I'm going to end up in the apocalypse with. So I need to be good at figuring out how to be with whoever I end up there with. Like she wrote so many stories where the main message was like, change is coming. You can be prepared for it and you can, you don't have to be a victim of it. You can actually shape it. Um, So she opened all of that, up for me and I kept returning to the work over and over again. She also really opened up that you can look to nature as a teacher. Um, right, right. That like the natural world is up to a lot of things and we are natural. And so anything that's happening out there can happen in us <laughs> and we can coexist and we can be symbiotic and we can collaborate. Um, and her disappointment in humanity also was really comforting to me. <laughs> you know, she was just like, wow, like we have this amazing, awesome earth and we are just fumbling the bag because we're so obsessed with using our intelligence to enact hierarchies over each other. Right. And I was like, she gets me. <laughs> she she sees how, what I see. <laughs> and how, how, how old were you when you started reading her? I, I think it was like 17. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. 17, like coming into college. Mm-hmm. And I found her books at the Strand Bookstore in New York. Mm-hmm. And yeah. There's this passage from The Parable of the Sower, mm-hmm. um, the book of the living, verse 19. And it, it's all successful life. And it um, you, I've seen you kind of um, work with with the words, with the language and the ideas um, that are at the core of your work, um, also kind of kind of emergent from this passage, or at yeah. least right. And so all successful life is, and I and I just love that framing, right? All what, right? Because as you said, it's mm-hmm. the apocalypse, but it's also, it's what could we be moving towards, right? What yes. what what how does successful life function is adaptable? opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, fecund, understand this, use it, shape God. Yes. It feels to me like, and you sometimes speak about, um, what is it you say, that visionary fiction, right, is, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a core principle in your work. And, and it seems to me that, I mean, what you're getting at there is a core value of imagination and and understanding uh, the power of imagination in making the world and remaking the world. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to shout out my friend Walida Imarisha, who um, named visionary fiction mm. and... I was obsessing over Octavia, and she was also. (laughs) And we found each other, and we we wrote, um, pulled together this anthology called Octavia's Brood. And in that process, I started the work of emergent strategy, you know, started to listen to what is up with the natural world? What can it teach us about how to be humans and how to be humans in a better relationship with each other? And what I realized is it is the work of radical imagination to do so, Hmm. but also that we're living inside of imaginations that other people (laughs) told us were true and told us were like, this is how the world is. And I always uplift my friend, Terry Marshall. Um, He was the first person to say this to me that we're in an imagination battle, which just blew my mind. And I, I think about it often that we live in this abundant world and 
we've been told it's scarce, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then we're given all these stories of scarcity. And because of that scarcity, we have to fight each other constantly. We live in a world where there's actually no superiority based on what we're born into, whether it be skin, sexuality, gender, any of that. But someone has imagined superiority Right, mm -hmm. and someone has imagined it into a structure that we now. There's no natural all... coming back to that language of what is natural. That no. there's no natural superiority in these things. No, everyone's mm -hmm. just doing their job. You know, right. like it's just like you're just being a mushroom. You're just being an oak tree. You're <laughs> right. over there being right. a daffodil and a sparrow. And like we each have work to do. Same amongst humans. We're just bags of water with the capacity to reason and like spiritual callings, <laughs> you know? Right. And we all have that. Um, but if we imagine that we're supposed to be divided and we imagine these constructs to live inside, we can get very committed to those constructs, right? And then our imaginations can get very limited because it's like, oh, what can I, what can I dream, you know, for me as a black queer woman, right? It's like, oh, what are the dreams that I can dream inside of the boxes of blackness and queerness that someone else has constructed for me? Yeah. And that's never felt like enough room because I'm a spirit, <laughs> you know, I'm this mm -hmm. massive energy like all humans are. Um, so, so much of the work for me of radical imagination is like, what does it look like to imagine beyond the constructs? What does it look like to imagine a future where we all get to be there um, not causing harm to each other and experiencing abundance. And what, how do we make it compelling? You know, is it, do we tell the right, you know, kind of story? Will that make it compelling? Do we need to write new music to make it compelling? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, does there need to be, like how much conflict is necessary to have a compelling future since humans seem to love it? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, is there I think a right your point is that we it? can also do it well or badly. That right now we do it very oh, badly. <laughs> you know, we do it very, we do it badly, but yeah. it's all happening at the same time. So there's also uh -huh. beautiful imaginations unfolding. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I come from 25 years of being a part of movement work where I think movement workers tend to have the most beautiful imaginations. You've even spoken about that organizing um, can be treated like time travel. Yes. Say it some is. more about that. What does that mean? Well, you know, we 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 very much have said all organizing is science fiction, right? You know, it's like we are reaching into the future. Mm -hmm. We are trying to project what we can imagine into the future. And organizing is a way of saying, like, we're going to put our hands directly on the future. Like, we're not going to sit by and let injustice perpetuate. Like, we are going to get involved and shape it um, into something that we can all be in. But it's also time traveling backwards, you know? So much of, of organizing is looking back at what did our ancestors try? Hmm. What did they learn? What were they up to? What was Harriet Tubman doing? Hmm. Right? We're obsessed, <laughs> you know, I'm obsessed with Harriet Tubman. <laughs> okay. I'm obsessed with like, what was it like to walk in her shoes and to face her fears, you know? So I always wanna reach back and be like, okay, well, now, what is the Harriet Tubman activity to do in this time? And what does Harriet Tubman up to in 2063? Yeah. Because there's always some place that needs um, justice and liberation. I love, you know, a minute ago, you were talking to me about your childhood and you said, 
your parents um, having an interracial marriage in the seventies. They were they were making a world that didn't exist. Yes, right. And very that's much also so. what you're. And that's what a that's what that's what visionary fiction does. That's what fiction does. And and I hear you saying that's what organizing does. Yeah, and you know, there's a way. Just like I think my parents ran into, it's like you have to bring that imagination into relationship with reality. Yeah, and. And that to can work be with what's there as well, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, there's something, mm-hmm. you know, being with what is, and mm-hmm. then f- figuring out how do we make more possible. Yeah. You know, I feel like y- your work and your writing, your activism, and really the conversation, the wider ecosystem of conversation and action and change and imagination that you're part of is um it's there's a there's a vocabulary there's really there's really a lexicon um and i that's being unfolded and it's Mm. you know words and ideas and practices and and so i think you know one of the things i want to do in this short time we have is to kind of just just kind of lay some of that out and i so obviously Mm. emergent strategy um is at the core of it, and I you you said a minute ago. I think that it was reading Octavia Butler that you first that that phrase came to you. But I just talk about what it means to put those words together: emergence mm-hmm. and strategy. I lo- I love talking about this. Okay. <laughs> I'm like maybe I'll never tire of it, mm-hmm. but I'll also try to be brief. So, um, the word emergence for people who who don't know the definition I work with comes from Nick Obolinsky. And its emergence is the way complex systems and patterns arise out of relatively simple interactions. So birds flapping their wings, birds in a flock together is a relatively simple interaction. Um, But birds all doing that together and avoiding predation can become the most complex, gorgeous patterns of murmurations, migration, survival, right? Mm. Um, So... We're all emergent beings. Humans are an emergent species amongst emergent species. And the strategy part comes in, you know, I was in a movement moment where everyone was talking about who was strategic, (laughs) Um, who's the most strategic and who's creating a strategic plan and all of this. And I realized that there was no specificity. Like you could be strategic and still causing a lot of harm. Yeah, and that's right. You can. So, yeah. Well, right. <laughs> I was like, you can be a hierarchical, patriarchal, strategic progress. person, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, we should be more precise. Mm-hmm. And I think what we mean by strategic is able to adapt to changing conditions while still moving towards our our vision of freedom and the future and being in that practice. So that's what emergent strategy is. It's like, how do we get in? a right relationship with change that allows us to harness and shape things um, towards community, towards liberation, towards justice. And we've been experimenting now for five years. The a book came out five years ago and we created a little institute that is like practicing things. The together. Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that ideation part is so important to me that it's like, we're still learning we're trying to we're trying to learn, you know, fundamentally how do humans become compatible with the earth again? Yeah, right. Because right now we've kind of fallen out of, out of her, <laughs> you know, out of alignment with what she's she needs. 
Yeah, um, I was looking on the website yeah. of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and that notion of, um, you know, acknowledging the real power of change and mm-hmm. and embracing, finding practices and responses of visions, visions and plans that embrace complexity, interdependence, yeah. and transformation, and also noting that this strategy has been observed from the natural world yes. and is both ancient and constant. So, you know, even yeah. in this short conversation you and I have had, you, um, you're always locating yourself within, right, within an ecosystem of teachers yes. and role yes. models and, uh, and language. Um, and, and for you, and this feels to me like such a, such an incredible thing that's happening in the 20... I mean, this language of ecosystem is about 100 years old, right? Kind of, yeah. in the, and, and I think it takes us about 100 years <laughs> as yep. a species to start to internalize a true paradigm shift like that. That's right. And that... I mean, so your teachers also um, are in the natural world. They are mushrooms Absolutely. and dandelions. <laughs> Absolutely. And the, yeah. I feel like the more mature I get, the more I'm able to receive the, the medicine or wisdom directly. Hmm. So... I feel like when I was first starting, I was like, let me go read Paul Stamets, you know, and see what, because he knows about mushrooms and I don't, you know, um, and nature was such a mysterious place to me. Um, you know, I was like, you're supposed to be scared of it. <laughs> and now I feel like, oh, I am of it. And I feel healthiest when I am in it and around it and listening to it. And when I'm doing all those things, I receive so much from it. There's so much you know, even at the basic, basic level of like taking care of a house plant, right? Hmm. Um, for years, I could not keep a house plant alive, and I would joke about it. But I also felt devastated. <laughs> you know, I was just like, so I can't even keep a simple thing alive on this mm-hmm. planet. You know, um, and and then I it clicked, right? That I'm like, oh, it's caring for something alive, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm not. Oh, I see. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, I had to demystify. Like I'm like, mm-hmm. this is. It's not like I just do one thing one time. And it's sorted, you know, right? Um, which is very much like how capitalism wants plants to be present. It's like, just buy a plastic one and put it in the corner. Done. Right? <laughs> well, so talk to me about the strategic <laughs> intelligence of mushrooms. So mushrooms, I feel like they're our great detoxer. Okay. Yeah. They're the ones who understand that nothing needs to be wasted, that everything can be used in some way. We just have to understand what it is. And they're all interconnected underground. Right. There's mushroom is a fruit. It's a sign of something else that's alive. And it's all interconnected. It's always communicating. But one of my favorite things about mushrooms is how they detox. And I often think about this when it comes to our abolition conversations and our Mm. justice conversations, that mushrooms are, are like, this is food if we can find a way to use it. This could be nourishment. And when something breaks down in our communities, it's actually a moment usually when something needs nourishing. Mm. Or when something is dead, when something mm. is done, it's complete, and it needs to be processed back into the whole. And instead of letting it go, <laughs> we battle each other, and we fight, and we take on shapes that maybe are gossipy or Can you think of harmful. just an example, just, just like a situation? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so in movement spaces, you know, I worked as a facilitator for 25 years, so one of the things I saw all the time is an organization would have kind of served its purpose or served the initial purpose it came into existence for. And there was what would have been great and possible 
was to just sunset the organization, right? Yeah. Just be like, great, we did a good job. Let's call it. Let's learn what we need to learn and move on. And instead of doing that, the organization was like, no, you know, someone or someones were like, no, we need to persist. So let's change our mission, right? We'll update our mission. And here's what the ph philanthropy is willing to fund. And they get contorted. Right. And that's and so much a part of it. Yeah. And they get contorted, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have people fighting each other saying, oh, you're not aligned with the values of this organization. You're not a true radical, you know, right? Um, all kinds of stuff comes out from that. Like, it's like actually all that needed to happen here was we need to let this thing go because it was complete yeah. and figure out what the next step of work is. And those next steps might be different. So some of the people who create, for instance, a radical direct action organization, if you win your campaign, Maybe you go on and say, what's the next place that needs action? Right. And that might be a different structure. But some people might be like, hmm, we need to switch tactics and move into governance now. We won something, and now we need to go govern that and make sure it happens. Those are very different callings. And sometimes they come together under the same umbrella. But we, we, we often forget that it's like, oh, now it's time to compost this and process right. it and see where else the resources need to flow. Oh, and I think what you're describing is true of all kinds of organizations, right? It's a it's yes. a cultural it's a cultural kind of bias and sensibility that we have that if something dies yes. or ends that that's bad. That it's failure. Exactly. Um this exactly. is this is coming to me as uh <laughs> this is feeling very <laughs> close to me right now because I don't know if mm. if you've heard that we're we're kind of winding down the weekly radio show that ah. is, which is how I'm being started, two uh -huh. decades, and wow, that's huge. It is huge, and and I think without having all the vocabulary and all the all the yes. words and the and the philosophy that you've just laid out, I I I know it's just time, right? And it's that's it's right. it's an ending and it's a beginning. It's vitality. It's right. vitality. Vitality and like what has endings to in is it. The has... life force, right? Mm -hmm. Like mushrooms. To me, mushrooms are like everything dies, but that's kind of good. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like it's it makes for a very rich world. Like all the richness, all that fecundity, all that beautiful miracle of life. Mm -hmm. It happens because we live in cycles. Not perpetuity. And as you say, right? it composts something else, right? Other yes. seeds. Other seeds yes. are then yes. have their moment, have their time. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. And it's trying to hold on to stuff and not let it die that actually puts us in precarious positions. Yeah. Even for our species. This is actually one of our biggest issues right now is we're so scared of death. Yeah. And so we think about how do we make people live forever and how do we look young forever and do all this stuff instead of being like, oh, no, how do I get good at dying? You know, how do I get to where I'll be at peace when my time comes? Because there's other generations that need to survive off of the resources of this mm -hmm. place. <laughs> you know, it's in the design. Yeah. And, and I, I guess something that's so on my mind also as I read you because you know I think my kind of focus is or my lens on all of, on things is the human condition right yes. you can look at anything through what's going on with the human condition and that also is very much part of of your world yeah. and um, I feel like there's a lot of wisdom um, about the human condition and also really you have to that you have to be wise about it in order to work with it and help it evolve generatively mm -hmm. um, you know so just just drawing on what you were just saying, 
uh, I mean, emergence is change, right? Someplace yeah. you said emergence is our yes. inheritance as a part of the universe. It is how we change. And emergence um, uh, doesn't wait for us to be ready for change. Mm-hmm. And we're really in an accelerated <laughs> moment of that right now. Mm-hmm. But as you know, change is really hard for human beings, right? It's hard for us at a creaturely level. And also we all um, individually handle it in different ways at different times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I, you know, I wanted to talk about, I feel like this wisdom is so powerfully embedded in, um, in the way you think and the way you're working and, and so I want to kind of go into some of the aspects of that. And one of those okay. for me is the way you use the word fractal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You said yeah. that you first thought about fractals when you were, so just to, you know, just to, to kind of bring home again, <laughs> that this is all about what happens on the ground. Um, you were doing electoral organizing in 2004. Is that right? Yeah. So I was doing electoral organizing in 2004 and, you know, 2003, 2004, right, where gearing up it's post 9-11 it's like we're going to war we're in at war or going to war with iraq and afghanistan and we're like we got to get bush out of office you know we have to he's he's just gonna keep perpetuating all these unjust wars with all these people and not help figure anything out so we're doing all this organizing and it clicked for me in a way that i couldn't you know it's one of those things you see it and you can't unsee it that i was like oh we are trying to just change the top layer of this very layered cake, um, this very layered process, this system of governance. We think that if we just win the presidency, that then we'll be able to change the world. And it clicked for me that it's like, actually it's a fractal system and it's layer on top of layer on top of layer. And if none of us are practicing democracy anywhere, it's not going to just suddenly work at the top layer. <laughs> and it, I got it. And then I, I realized, so I started asking people, because I was touring uh, a book we had written. And I started asking people, do you practice democracy like anywhere in your life? <laughs> you know, not even, you know, not even politically, but just like in your household. Right. You know, who makes the decisions about the, the <laughs> what budget? Do, what do people right? say? <laughs> no, right. Nobody was practicing it. Right. Or if people were practicing it, they would be like, oh yeah. You know, there'd always be like one really like happy person who was like, I practice it, you know? And then I'd be like, okay, in your household, you practice it. Do you practice it with your neighbors? And mm-hmm. then they would have to be quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. Or do you practice it? Okay, like there was just almost nobody yeah. who was practicing it like on their, their block or in their community. Um, or in their organizations or other places, everyone's kind of dodging the actual work of democracy, you know, small d democracy, right? So then, of course, we're in this crisis right now where we cannot figure out a way past this political impasse moment. Um, You know, to me, what it reveals is we haven't been practicing democracy for such a long time anyway. We've really outsourced almost every aspect of governance and the only part we've held on to is complaining. Mm. Um, you know, people sit in their living rooms, they form opinions, they're upset about stuff, they don't do much about it, and but they're apoplectic, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and they um, also don't know what they can do about it, right? Exactly. At that right? mega that's level. That's on purpose, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So it's like trying to keep people in a place where they're angry 
and they think they can buy their way out of it, you know, that's one of the reasons organizers exist is to be like, actually, mm-hmm. you, you can't get out of it that way, but there are ways we'll have to work together to figure it out, you know, but there are, are other practices. But that's when it clicked for me that I was like something about smallness I was able to gain respect for because I was like every single large system or structure or network or political protocol, all of it is made up of small things of humans either having or not having necessary conversations and humans being willing to stand up for what is right and stand up against what is wrong. It's all these small activities that we need to get great at if we want to actually have anything that would be a real democracy. Yeah, this... This um, this way you you make the connection between what happens at the interpersonal level is mm-hmm. a way to understand the whole society, how mm-hmm. we are at the small scales, how we are at the large scale. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about during the pandemic um, is uh, like that we are each and every one of us, even each and every one of our individual nervous systems is has been in distress. And right. and one way to look at our political life together, our life together, has been of a kind of collective nervous system in distress. Totally. Absolutely. It's it's so wild to me right now <laughs> that people are like acting like they're rushing to get back to some kind of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, We're changed. How are you We're changed, holding your right? grief? There's yeah. no normalcy. Yeah. There's no backward. There's new. You know, this is this is what's our new reality, which will keep changing. And, um, but you know, I, I have found myself so transformed by these last two years. Um, and in some ways, mm, like there's some aspects of it that I'm like, I never want to go back. I never want to go back to paying less attention to my relationships with other people. (laughs) You know, like I like, I like that aspect of this that I'm so intentional now with like, hey, you know, what are you doing in terms of masks and vaccines? <laughs> and like, mm. you know, like, let's be really intentional about how we can safely spend time together. Yeah. Um, it, do you have a definition for, because this this language of fractal comes from um, mathematics, right, originally? Yeah, and you know, the first thing that I was exposed to was actually fractals, uh, The the Fibonacci, like the, mm-hmm. the sequence is basically like mm-hmm. how something repeats at scale, no matter how small it gets and no matter how large it is. And it's these particular patterns in the universe. And I felt so naughty when I started using fractal, you know, as someone who's <laughs> like, I barely understand math, yeah. but I understand that there's something about patterns that could liberate how we're thinking about ourselves and each other. Right. And, um, but so far, my my friends who are in the math and science world have not like, you know, completely um, doused me <laughs> in shame. So I feel like I'm, you know, I'm okay. But it helps people, you know, sometimes I'll use the language of fractals. Sometimes I'll just point to actual examples. So I'll be like, look at a head of broccoli, look at f- a fern, look at the delta around New Orleans, and then like, look at how these veins and artery systems move through your system and your Mm -hmm. heart and your lungs. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at the spiral shapes on your fingertips and then look at the shape of galaxies. And in that way, we can begin to see like there's, there, there are no isolated patterns. You know, the universe 
it has some favorites and they repeat and they repeat at every scale. Hmm. And then people are like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, yes, like your body is a whole water system. You know, I've been having this thought lately of like, oh, we're like another body of water. Like there's rivers, there's oceans, there's rain, there's mist, there's human, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. there's right whale, right? We're, there's all these different formations that are all how to, how to move water. And we're one of them. And I find it very comforting, you know, to, to find myself in one of those patterns. And, and that, that is that imagery is so stunning and and it provides exactly the contrast to to this right to this worldview that yeah that you and I were raised in um that came into the 21st century that right yeah. that you could elect one person at the top yes <laughs> and that would change everything and that would change everything that would change everything it was exactly. never true but it was no. perhaps it felt a little more true in a more homogeneous society yeah, and I also think it's like, again, in the imagination, if you are someone who would benefit from that power system, right, then mm-hmm. it really behooves you to imagine the world is that way. Yeah, that works. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, oh, like, if I was born as a white man, and, you know, someone said, yeah, like, one day, if you're really great, you could be the president, and you could run everything. Yeah. You could make all the decisions by yourself. That Wouldn't that be so cool? Like, I'd be like, I love this. <laughs> this is yeah. really working for me, right? But for the rest of us who are like, but I'm just, you know, I, from a very young age, was like, but I'm just as smart as these white men in my classes, and and yet the same opportunities are not available to me. Can someone help me understand that? Yeah. I, I need a logic because <laughs> it's not adding and, up. And there is no logic. And there's no logic yeah. to it, right? And often when there's no logic, then that's when you know you're in someone's dream. Hmm. You know, I was looking up because I also mistrusted my own, I still mistrust my ability to define fractals. There's this mathematician, great mathematician, Mandelbrot, asked to define oh, yeah. fractals, said, <laughs> beautiful Damn hard, increasingly useful. <laughs> yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it, you know, there's so many things like this. I will say when I wrote the book, I think in one of the footnotes, I was like, if you're a scientist, <laughs> you know, um, just trying to help little, us make more sense. Got me a little right? slack. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or basically I was just like, you mm-hmm. know, because especially in the sci-fi world, the science world, there's already this this battle over like, is that real science fiction or fake science fiction? Like, does it have enough hard science in it mm. to, to count as a story, right? And it's like, okay, if you want to spend your life arguing about that, cool. Yeah. But for me, I was like, the point for me is not to argue about the science because science is actually still unfolding all the time and we're, it's, yes. a, it's a question-based methodology. <laughs> so yeah. I want to be in that method, you know, I want to be asking questions. So I'm a scientist so what, you know, deal with it, right? But then there's also like, don't come to just argue the point, right? I feel like our whole society right now spends so much time just arguing for the sake of arguing. Yeah. And I'm like, we actually need solutions. So if fractals is the wrong word, teach me a better one. But what I want to talk about is this, right? And if, if um, you know, I talk a lot about alpha versus more collaborative creatures. Right. And, you know, I can tell when I'm with the devil's advocate folks, you know, they're like, well, what about, you know, lions just eat everyone? Should we learn that from nature? And I'm like, (laughs) no, nature does everything. Nature does everything. There's not, it's actually the beauty of releasing the right, wrong paradigm, right? That's not how nature is even 
operating. Like, is it wrong to eat this deer? <laughs> you know, it's beyond that. It's like, if nature can show us everything, then we st- we, we're the ones who have agency. Mm. And if the goal for our species is not to cause harm to each other, we could do that. There's models from nature. And mm. if the goal is to make enough out of the resources we have, there's incredible models of mm. creatures who are doing that all the time, every day, and in very difficult circumstances. If yeah. the goal is to love each other, right, like Thich Nhat Hanh said, such that we all feel free, you know, that that's possible. Well, we can see in nature who's who's up to that, right? Mm. We can learn a lot from the bonobo monkeys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so on and so forth. So it's really, th- you know, being asking people to be more intentional with, like, we were given some things about the world from people who knew less than we do now. So what do we want to hold on to and what do we want to evolve? Hmm. Um, the language of um, transformative justice and resilience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what putting the word transformative there. Yeah, shifts transformative justice, transformative resilience. Yeah. So, for me, when I add the word transformative to anything, what I mean is, let's get to the root of the problem. You know, I think Angela Davis said this is how she talks about radical. It's like let's go all the way to the root. Yeah, and that's and the meaning of the word radical, right? It's exactly. not. It's not something on the edges. It's it's, it's not what's the edges, at the core. Right? It's, at the it's like what's at the yeah. core, the root, the essence of it. And so for me, when I speak about transformative, it's like, I don't want to dance around on the surface, you know, rearranging deck chairs, right? Like I want to get down into the root system and really understand what's happening and what it would take to create a change if a change is needed. So, you know, if we, for example, right, we have um, a crisis of sexual assault, a crisis of sexual harm. I don't want to be in a situation where we punish one person at a time, um, which doesn't seem to have worked at all in terms of eliminating the problem. And yet we continue doing it and building bigger and bigger prison systems and jails and other stuff, but it's not stopping the problem, right? So transformative justice says, actually, that's not working. (laughs) Why don't we get to the root system? What's causing people to enact sexual harm against each other? And can we turn and look at that without um, without holding anything back? Can we really get honest with ourselves and look at it? Because it's everyone we know has some experience. We all have some experience of someone crossing those boundaries. And, may, you know, we're talking about the level. How badly did they cross them rather than did it happen or not, right? Like, that's wild. And... So for me, I'm like, how do we get transformative about it? How do we go to the root system? And I learned this, there's a group called Generation Five who was really starting to have this conversation of like, what would it look like over five generations to end child sexual abuse? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, that's a radical vision. The other aspect of transformative is it often doesn't rely on the existing structures or mechanisms. So in, in organizer speak, we might say the state right? Like it doesn't rely on what we already think of as the solution because we know that that's already not working. And actually we want to never try to solve a problem with something that we know will cause more harm if we can avoid it, right? So in a lot of our communities, 
say that a domestic violence incident is happening, we don't want to solve that by calling the police because the police in our communities tend to escalate the harm rather than de-escalate the harm, right? Yeah. That not only do we have this domestic violence situation happening, but now we have someone being possibly removed from their community, removed from their home. Um, we have kids possibly being removed from their parents and other things that are actually not necessary, nor are they helpful to solving the problem. So let's not add to the problem. Let's figure out how we can resolve it within our communities through mediation, through setting clear boundaries, through healing circles. Um, you know, are, is there therapy needed? Like, let's let's get you know as creative as we can about what needs to actually happen to stop the harm cycle. And you know, this is emergent, right? This yeah. whole way of seeing, this whole way of imagining. Um, is emergent in our world right now, and there's 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 a lot of there's struggle around it. There are different ways of seeing, but I think perhaps more definingly, the conditions aren't all there, right? That's right, right. right? So you know, one of the things um, that you also talk about is how like there is going to be important conflict and contradiction that is part of the process of ending cycles of harm and so one of the things we also have to be working on and this goes back to our human condition um, I mean here's some ways you've talked about it you know how do we fight fair how do we struggle in principled ways how do we practice accountability beyond punishment with each other because the structures are not there right now in most of our communities to just move to what you just described. And that's where a lot of, and that's, and there's all kinds, there are all kinds of friction points, right? But that's one of them. Well, and you know, one of my teachers around this is um, a writer and a thinker named Miriam Kaba. And she's an exquisite human being, exquisite thinker. I want everyone to learn from her. How do you spell the last name? Kaba, K-A-B-A. She put out a book um, last year, We Do This Till We Free Us. Mm. And um, one of the things that she often reminds me of, because like I think what would be so comforting to us is if we could be like, we're going to end the prison system and automatically move to a very well-organized, centric, centrifi- you know, cent- uh, yeah. centralized system where like, you know, instead of everyone going to prison, like you just go straight to a mediator and it's all handled, right? Yeah. And one of and the things there, she we would have like, the foundation for that. We just move exactly. from one place to the we'll other just move and from the other one, one works. straight to the yeah. other, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she's like, it won't be like a huge overarching centralized system. Like transformative justice will be a lot of us learning the skills to hold conflict within our communities, within our families, um, within our schools and institutions we're learning ourselves to hold it in different ways. So she has another book out called Fumbling Towards Repair with my friend Shira Hassan, um, which I love because it's a workbook that's like, okay, how do, if I wanted to do, (laughs) you know, a process like this and like not have to call in punitive devices, you know, what would that look like? And it's like, yeah, we have to actually learn how to do something that feels new Mm-hmm. But also, I always love to point out that this is some of the most ancient technology also, right? Um, if we listen to indigenous communities around ways that they have resolved conflict over 
you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, a lot of it is the same practices and they're still practicing them, right? So it's being in a circle, it's listening, it's um, being able to let one person speak at a time, mm. it's identifying what are the consequences, right? Not the punishments, but what are the reasonable consequences, the boundaries, you know, how, how do we make this right? Yeah. What does that actually look like? And relinquishing the idea that, you know, we'll all end up as best friends at the end or whatever, right? <laughs> right the kind of right. fairy tale Disney version of conflict mediation. Instead, being with what is the human condition, it says, it might be hard. You might never get back to that, but you can get to a just place. Hmm. You can get to a just place. You can get to a place where you're not walking around carrying the anger of knowing that person, that that's not the primary experience you're having. You know, it's like, I was hurt and now I've been able to move forward and, and here's what moving forward looks like. And I was able to define some of that for myself. Hmm. You know, there was a, um, there's a, I just want to read a beautiful, some beautiful sentences you wrote. So, hmm. so powerful. And I'm, and I think this is in, we will not cancel us. Um, okay. We are brilliant at survival, but brutal at it. We tend to slip out of togetherness the way we slip out of the womb, bloody and messy and surprised to be alone, and clever, able to learn with our whole bodies the way of this world. And the context of that was talking about how your default position is wonder. Um, and um, you have to carry around a lot of disappointment and frustration <laughs> yes. and critique with with humanity and and that that applies that that you also you know that 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 is that is that especially true when you look at um, social justice movements um, where you expect so much right and desire so much <laughs> yes. and um, and you're you're being honest and you're actually saying that from a place of love right and of yeah, and yeah. of high brilliant expectations and yet um and so this is kind of you know this this is a, a an entry point for your for your book we will not cancel us yeah. um which which is which was about is about cancel culture simplistically put mm. and so countercultural <laughs> in this mm -hmm. context in which um to to call for accountability to express honest critique even to kind of um acknowledge imperfection um mm -hmm. is is leapt on as mm -hmm. failure yeah um so you really walked into a Brave and hazardous space. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Krista. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I um, it's I always think about how that, that book came out. I had been away on sabbatical, um, and the pandemic was unfolding, and I returned from sabbatical, and there was like, everyone was canceling each other is what it felt like. Yeah. Um, I had been away from social media for not even that long. And so I know this was happening before I stepped away, but I was normalized to it because I was in it every day. And mm. then when I stepped mm. away and came back, I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> like this is all we're doing on the internet now. Mm. Um, you know, it just felt like, it just felt like so intense. 
and it didn't feel um it didn't feel like what we're supposed to be up to you know like I felt like sometimes when I'm sitting <laughs> around I feel like I can feel I'm not sure if it's ancestors or future spirit or whatever it is but I just feel this this beyond energy um sit with me like that's not the way <laughs> that's not the mm. way and and you know sometimes there's a like try this or take a look over here you know um look up <laughs> you know look at mm -hmm. this look at these starlings and just see if they offer you something you know and it felt like that i was i was looking at this cancellation wave and then i was feeling for mushrooms you know, <laughs> yeah and yeah. feeling for like who does know how to process toxic energy who does know how to process process toxic happenings you know um can we do it a different way could we could we do it with love and can we be honest at least honest that there's not love in the way we're doing it now right because i think that was also what was hurting my heart was people being like yeah we just have to love each other <laughs> and then we're doing the most awful, awful dismissals and disposals of each other. Mm -hmm. And because of my facilitation background, I was also catching some of those disposals. Like um, people would show up and just be like, hey, you probably saw this, but I just got canceled. <laughs> and almost yeah. always, I was like, I didn't even see it. Like I can't even keep up with <laughs> right. you missed all of it. it. So yeah. I was like, I had no idea, but yeah. this person was devastated and, mm -hmm. and sometimes suicidal. Yeah. Like, you know, this is, I mean, it was having an impact. And I, I was like, I want us to at least not pretend like it's not having an impact, at least that, you know, hmm. um, let's take responsibility. And then the other pattern I noticed was often it was people who were fairly young in movement themselves or fairly young inside of, of, you know, whatever their political analysis was, you know, I'm like, I can kind of remember before you thought that, you know, I can remember when you might've made the same mistake. Right. And I was like, do you remember? <laughs> you know, my heart just was like, do y'all do y'all remember that like everyone was transphobic last week? Like mm -hmm. all of y'all were saying this this horrific stuff and like we need to unlearn this. Like together we need to unlearn it. And I think it felt like people were starting to skip the step of actually decolonizing and unlearning um these oppressive systems and just being like I'll just punish anyone who missteps and that'll be how I do my action. And it's almost like that's people's activism now. And I'm like, so, right. so now we're in a true bind because punishment doesn't work. <laughs> and it's not, a, it's like we're aligning ourselves with the state and it's, we're depressed. We're losing leaders left and right yeah. um, because people are making mistakes and now there's no room for making mistakes. So it just felt like a total crisis to me that needed, needed a different kind of attention. And because I had been away on sabbatical, I think I was brave enough <laughs> to do it um, in that moment. Yeah, what is it? You mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh talking about being free. What he says, yeah. fresh, solid, and free. You came back yes. from sabbatical. Okay, yes. do you have, um, we will not cancel us. Do you have the little book by you? So on page yeah. 58, um, what you've been talking about on the previous page is, is kind of the harm that is created. Um, uh -huh. Um, 
But but what I really think you get at here is again, if what we're, we we started with the cake, right? The layer cake, yes. and the election yes. isn't going to change very much if you just it's it's just the icing. That's right. um, and so you're looking at the layers of this, and I feel like this page is uh, is such an acute analysis of of what cancel culture, and I mean all around, right, on across the spectrum, what it yeah. says about our culture, mm. which is kind of the opposite of, um, I mean, honoring emergence, right? Mm-hmm. So would you just read that, you know, but one layer yeah. under that, what I hear is. We cannot change. We do not believe we can create compelling pathways from being harm doers to being healed and to growing. We do not believe we can hold the complexity of a gray situation. We do not believe in our own complexity. We do not believe we can navigate conflict and struggle in principled ways. We can only handle binary thinking, good, bad, innocent, guilty, angel, abuser, black, white, etc., etc. Cancer attacks one part of the body at a time. I've seen it. Oh, it's in the throat. Now it's in the lungs. Now it's in the bones. When we engage in knee-jerk call-outs as a conflict resolution device or issue instant consequences with no process, we become a cancer unto ourselves, unto movements and communities. We become the toxicity we long to heal. We become a tool of harm when we were trying to be, and I think meant to be, a balm. Oh, unthinkable thoughts. Now that I have thought you, it becomes clear to me that all of you are rooted in a singular longing. I want us to live. I want us to want to live in this world, in this time, together. What's it like to read that back to yourself? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I deeply believe it. Yeah. Um, like, I really want us to live. And I also... I feel less lonely now. When I was writing this, I felt very alone. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I was just like, um, I'm scared for us and for movement spaces. Like I want us to hold each other as so precious. Um, and when I was writing it, that was in me, thrumming through me, you know, such a loud longing. But I feel so much less alone now than I did when this came out. Um, because it came out and I've had so many people like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, just like, yes, now I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are, have been called out in the time since this book came out who reached out to me and been like, I didn't know <laughs> until yeah. it happened to me. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the main thing that strikes me now is I feel like a lot a lot more people are like, oh, it's. It's part of the political toxicity of the moment yeah. that we've been all yeah. tricked into participating in. It's also part of our distressed nervous systems, right? Exactly. We've had bad impulse control for kind of understandable reasons. Oh my gosh. But then yes. but then the internet was just a terrible platform for letting letting that loose. Um Yeah. You know, one of the ways I think about um I think this is language I use for some of the same things you're talking about, kind of the ecosystem that is emerging. And, you know, because I think also what you're describing um, in the response you got to this is that other people were feeling this. 
and yes. right and seeing it uh, not having the language or or perhaps speaking quietly at home but not um, feeling quite brave enough to to write it down in public um, I yeah. right and I so I th- I think about that there is this let's use your word toxic landscape mm-hmm. that is so well-publicized and well-equipped, right? Well-supported. And then there is also this generative landscape of our world, of our time, Mm -hmm. um, which is quiet, um, right? Which is even, I I mean, Mm -hmm. let's use our Mm -hmm. mushroom. It's like it's underground in a way. (laughs) I mean, it's it's under the radar, right? Yeah. So... So if I ask you to describe, you know, the generative, just just start kind of, you know, what is, when I ask you the, about the generative narrative of our time that you see, you know, um, just tell me some stories. Tell me what you see, what you look at. Yeah, I, I will say one of the most clear signs of our generative capacity and our generative nature has been watching so many people move through this past two years of pandemic. And um, once we recognized like no one was coming to save us and like the right decisions, (laughs) you know, like good decisions for public health were not necessarily gonna be the ones that stuck. I've seen so much care, Hmm. like care that will just break your heart wide open and give you faith in the species again. And I have seen it, I've witnessed it, I've been a part of it. I have been like, my most generous self. I have been amongst people being their most generous selves during this time. I have been um, my most needy self and Mm -hmm. I have gotten to witness other people expressing needs and expressing boundaries and and getting them met. And that has been gorgeous to me. I have seen a great slowing down and a lot of people looking at each other kind of (laughs) askance like, Whoa, (laughs) I had no idea that slowing just the basic, basic, basic action of slowing down my life could yield such beautiful results of presence Hmm. and of gratitude for what is. Like, I feel like I can be with the world. And I didn't know that. I I thought that I had to be fixing the world all the time, (laughs) you know, that like there was just no way to just be with it as it is. But I'm like, oh, no, like, being a part of justice movements is a part of being of the world, but I also need to like be in it. I need to remember how beautiful it is. And like, I need to make my commitments, you know, going through this pandemic, I, I landed with, I need a travel ban on myself. Now it's very, very, very limited that I will travel because I'm like, I love the earth. I don't need to fly and like, leave a massive carbon footprint to tell people how much I love the earth. I need to love it. (laughs) So that means I need to like stay grounded as much as I can. Cause look how beautiful the earth responded to us being grounded. Yeah. She loved that. She was like, yes, this is, here's some clear water. This is, I love it. Right. She communicates just like a house plant, (laughs) you know, she's like, look, I will become more vibrant. And so that when I think of like, Oh, generative world. For me, a lot of it is like, how do I generate commitments and practices in my own life that put me in in a better relationship to this world that nourishes and feeds me mm. so so generously, asking for nothing. Um, that feels like it. And then time with kids, time with like imagination. 
Um, and sometimes I think when I say those things, I'm, I'm, I mean them, you know, interchangeably, but you know, when I'm around kids, when I get to go be with my nibblings, when I get to play, um, it always helps me to remember, I'm like, oh, right, this is part of what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. This is a human behavior, not a kid behavior. Um, so I think being in that, you know, space is like, I'm working on a musical right now and I'm <laughs> right, I working heard that. on albums yeah. and all this, yeah. all this stuff that's like in the creative realm. And I'm just keeping like, oh, right, we're supposed to be doing this. <laughs> like, mm. y'all, like, let's, let's let go of this, the misery we were told and we shared the imagination was like, that was our calling. We're not supposed to be miserable. Um, you know, something I, I did not know about you is that you um, are a doula. Yeah. Do you still do you still deliver babies? I'm not super active mm-hmm. as the baby doula now. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's been a couple of years since I was part of a birth. Uh, this past year, I was supposed to be part of two. And then COVID changed yeah. all that, right? So, but I feel like a doula all the time, Christine. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like I've I've organize doula into how I do everything. Mm. <laughs> so I feel like I'm constantly now, um, like I'm a book doula for a lot of people. <laughs> okay. you know, I have really helped a lot right. of people to bring their books into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my organizational work, you know, the work of the doula is just to say like, you know what to do. And I'm going to be here to remind you if you forget that, mm. like your body knows what to do. Your sacred system knows what to do. And let me, you know, let me just be a, a cheerleader for your intuition and your inner knowing. And let me make you as comfortable as possible while you do hard work, mm. which that's how I think of facilitation is let me make it easy for you to do the hard thing. Um, someplace I saw you said that, oh, you were listing your important meditation teachers and you included every baby I have ever held. It's true. Mm. <laughs> it's true. I mean, who else do you sit down with and immediately it's like, should we make eye contact forever? (laughs) (laughs) Should we just like stare at each other and wonder? I mean, like, is there a better meditation than that? I don't know of one, but I do know that the majority of humans I know, if you sit down, if you hold, hand them a baby, you know, there's that moment of looking and being like, Oh, you're here. Mm -hmm. Like you're right here right now. You're, there's nothing else <laughs> that you're... It occurs to me that we are thinking about the absolute embodiment of emergence, right? Exactly. <laughs> the incarnational... <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow, like you're here. Mm-hmm. I have to be present because you're so present. Now, I say this as an auntie, right? Yeah. Because I also like to put the kid down and give it back to mom. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, wonder. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Now let's, you know... All the hard work is still going to be your mom. (laughs) Parenting is hard work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's so much to talk about here. I, you know, one thing I do, I don't want to end without getting to is um, Mm. pleasure activism, which actually flows very nicely from that. Um, I think uh, it's been so fascinating. It's been fascinating for me because I have this kind of cumulative conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And at some point in the last couple of years, over and over and over again, people kept making this very clear, very insistent connection between justice and joy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you and I and you talk about pleasure activism. And so yes. 
Yeah, so 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 describe that. And yeah, I mean, I want to make justice and liberation the most pleasurable experiences that we can have as a species. I want to make it feel like ah, uh, when I make the best choice, it feels good and I know it from my bones up and out. And I know that that means um, a deep reclamation, especially for those of us who have experienced oppression or trauma, that what gets taken from us um, often is the sense that we deserve pleasure, hmm. that we know how to feel it, that we're allowed to feel it. Hmm. So one of the things I say is pleasure is not a frivolous thing. Actually, it's a measure of freedom, that when you are free, one of the ways you know that is that you can you can feel pleasure. You can feel the present moment. And I don't mean sexual and drug pleasure only. Um, so, you know, if that's your thing, you know, like if a yeah, sex no, dungeon or whatever yeah. is your thing, then that's wonderful. But I'm speaking of a much simpler thing, usually. For most people, it's really just being able to feel the erotic aliveness of a yeah. moment and the erotic, like, yes, I am alive, I'm here right now, and this is this is how I want this moment to go, this is good. And I have to shout out the queen mother <laughs> of our of our lineage for pleasure activism is Audre Lorde. Yeah. Um, she wrote an essay in 1978 called The Uses of the Erotic as Power, mm. and I highly recommend listening to it. You can actually listen to her read it. Um, I did not know that. Yes, there's mm -hmm. a, a video clip on YouTube of her reading it. And I'm like, it's always good medicine. It'll always get you right back in your alignment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, and you, you point out when you write about pleasure activism that that so much of so much of how we try to organize and mobilize and and um and even in i don't know even inspire orient and yes in social justice work but in journalism as well is yeah. is about planting facts and guilt and shame <laughs> even though yeah. i mean if we go back to that list of you know if we go back to Octavia mm -hmm. Butler and the way you've talked about what is successful life right it's it yeah. that that does not create change um um but you're talking about how do we create like practices and communities that everybody see that are magnetic that you want to run towards. Yeah. And Tony Cade Bambara said we have to make the revolution irresistible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I think about that. She's quoted and there's a whole essay from Alexis Pauline Gums in the book about her work. But I, I think about that, you know, because I'm like, we need and it's all connected, you know, to me, it's the radical imagination work, the emergent strategy work, the pleasure activism work. It all connects because it's like we are trying to create a future in which we can actually survive. And we want to make it feel good, smell good, taste good. Hmm. Um, we want to make sure that everyone feels like they could belong in it. Yeah. We want to make sure that everyone feels like their needs could be met in there. And we know that we can't get there through punishment, right? Yeah. And there's a pleasure... And I, I promise it, I always love to promise it to people because I'm just like, I, I know that this, everyone can experience this. There's a pleasure from being present, truly present. You know, where you're like, I'm with the people I want to be with. I'm doing what I want to do. Mm -hmm. It only comes from being really present. And 
capitalism has us socialized to think we constantly have to be looking elsewhere for it. So we're running around not satisfied, not satisfiable, no sense of what that would be like. And in our justice movements, that's that's not a good look, right? Yeah. Because if we have no idea what it feels like to be satisfied, we won't know when we win. <laughs> mm. So, you know, I'm always like, we need to be satisfiable. We need to know what that feels like. And one of the fastest ways to know what that feels like is to be satisfied in the body. Yeah. Right? Like, you know what an orgasm feels like. <laughs> Most of us do. Mm. Um, and even if we can't feel an orgasm, we can feel pleasure we can feel or the beauty ease right that's ease that is actually present. not so accessible mm-hmm. to so many of us just that mm-hmm. you know um uh that yes there's the um there's capitalism that is constantly making us not present and there's also a world of fear right totally um Again, you know, again, kind of circling back, it is a time of unstoppable change, and change is so unsettling, and different kinds of people are on the losing end of this change, or fear that they are, and fear has, right? Fear is also, fear, fear is the greatest example of the power of imagination, because even right. a perceived Mostly. threat, right, Mostly lands with the power of threat, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, we don't, I I appreciate um, a piece that you wrote. um, I I think this is on your blog, A Word for White People in Two Parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talked about, um, you know, first of all, you speak as a mixed-race black woman, Mm -hmm. um, that you think about, you know, you understand that you are connected to lineages of harm even as you are harmed by these lineages. in your body. Um, but I, I also see you bringing, you know, like here's a quote that you have about, this is like, this is, we should have an hour for this conversation and we don't. But, um, <laughs> you know, so let me just pull out, and I'm not even sure if this was from the same thing, but I so appreciated this <laughs> because even the language of white supremacy, which we must, which is, which must be part of our vocabulary, right? And, yeah, yeah. and what it means must sink into all of our bodies. And I, and I think it is, although this is, you know, we will only see this in hindsight. Um, yeah. But, but it is, also can be a source that, you know, the language itself can land with shame, can land with fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, this, I appreciate this sentence so much, um, which is just humanizing this. Supremacy is our ongoing pandemic. It partners with every other sickness to tear us from life or from lives worth living. I mean, to me, that kind of that kind of brings in the invitation to pleasure activism, even into this very hard, you know, place of, of for a lot of people on the other end of that language of white supremacy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the biggest tricks of white supremacy is that it's, it takes away from the ability to truly be connected mm-hmm. in a deep, authentic relationship with your own power and that of others. Yeah. Right? Because you're like, oh, <laughs> is this real or is it, am I living inside some matrix that's telling me that I'm in charge, but I don't have actual power? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but there's something that comes from those authentic relationships. And I've seen this over and over again that is so outstanding and liberating when you know that 
you are not participating in the harm or denigration or subjugation of another human being. And that any places where you are and you can't, you know, help it, right? I'm like, okay, we, we do what we can to change those systems. You know, I was a war tax resistor for years and <laughs> in part because I was like, I can't be a part of causing any harm. I really want to feel that. But it's like, once you recognize that you're in these systems, then you have to figure out, okay, it's not good to deny that I'm in the system. That's not going to help anyone. How do I actually take responsibility for the ways that the system is actually benefiting me? And how do I transform my relationships from that place? Hmm. So for white folks, you know, I'm like, you are white. You're not going to not be white. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no cultural appropriation that will, will change that. What you can do, though, is be in a different relationship to what it means. And I, my belief is that it's actually not about being in a shame-based relationship either, right? It's really about being in a, in a relationship of like, this is the work that I was given in this lifetime, mm-hmm. was to help untie this knot of white supremacy that is actually a noose around my own neck. You know, I, you, the, the, that being caught inside of whiteness trying to uphold whiteness is so devastating for people, for white people. It's devastating right. this whole planet. You're saying <laughs> let's move towards lives worth living. Right? Lives worth I living. I really love that. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of that blog post, you put a word for white people in two parts. Part one, what a time to be alive, which is true <laughs> and which is another way to frame yes. it, right? And I feel like we should almost put that sentence at the beginning of so many of our conversations, right? What a Seriously. time to be alive that we are in this total paradigm shift, right? And exactly. that we are we are tasked with standing before these existential, potentially transformative junctures for our species. Exactly. I mean, this is to me the most exciting thing right now, right? Is like we are if we are aware, if we wake up, we are in a place where we can create so much history and so much change. Yeah. Everything is falling apart, but also new things are possible. And Octavia said that there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. We're in a time (laughs) of new suns. Right, right. We're in a time of new suns. Like we have no idea what we could be, but everything that we have been is falling apart. Mm -hmm. So it's time to change. And we can be mindful about that. That's exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's buckle your seatbelt exciting, right? Yeah, it's like this is we are the action heroes you know I always say that for organizers but I'm like really to be a human once you wake up and recognize like oh I can shape everything I don't have to be a victim of someone else's vision for my subjugation I actually get to be a powerhouse in the story of my own life and my people's lives oh that's a different invitation I'd much rather live in that scenario and so I do Mm. (laughs) and and uh, and you do it as part of an ecosystem, not as a as a yeah. bold individual, right? So that on the days that you can't carry that, on the days that it's not hope that you feel, but despair yes. or exhaustion, um, you're not you're 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 not standing there alone with those. Well, and I've been thinking about this a lot. A friend of mine, Alexis Pauline Gums, who I mentioned, I think yeah, already. Yeah. But she she's such an incredible poet, an incredible writer, but she also has been teaching me a lot lately about how just the idea of being an individual, that is a ridiculous idea. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. She's like, that's a mythology. Like we're not individuals. And, you know, the more I think about the ecosystems and emergent strategy and like what nature is trying to teach us, um, 
the more I hear like we are one. And uh, my dear friend Michaela Harrison, she goes and listens to whales. Um, she <laughs> sings to them and listens to them because that's the kind of things my friends do. <laughs> like, that's right. what emergent strategists do. And she said the message she got from the whales is we are one. And I'm like, that's when I think back to the first thing I felt like I understood, it was that. It's like, oh, we are one. Whenever I do my mushroom trips and my psychedelic experiences, whenever I have a spiritual awakening, all of it resonates with that same song. We are one, we are one, we are one. And I think that's what we're supposed to be figuring out is so then if we are one, how do we do that? How do we be one interconnected living organism? How do we do that? And I think that's our big human question for this time. And I think it's a really good one to spend life on. Mm. Here's something you said that is mm -hmm. also to me just a reframing of a fact in a way that opens the imagination and opens mm. and humanizes and opens possibility. You said, we are a nation, and you might have said we are a world. Not just diverse or divided, but torn. Pulled mm -hmm. towards life and pulled towards death. I know exactly where I said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember thinking that and writing that. I mean, it is true. Um, right now, there's almost... Um, a commitment to or an addiction to death, like producing and creating death, keeping it going. And and I think that's why it feels so nerve-wracking right now, that despair and that system disruption you spoke about, because it's like there's a lot of us who want to live. Yeah. Like a ton, ton, ton. I think the vast majority of us want to live. Um, and then there's a small, smaller group that is willing to let everything die in order to achieve. And that's a really tender, tense place to be, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, because that feeling of like, oh, you, you know, when we say to people like these, like right now with the Roe versus Wade um, conversation, yeah, you know, there's so much struggle and strife and people are like, but we're going to die if that happens. And, uh, you know, not understanding that I'm like, Death is an acceptable um, collateral damage for so many people making policy about our lives right now that it's no longer a compelling argument to make that we will die. They know that. Hmm. They know we'll die. So that's not, that's not going to move them, <laughs> right? And once you recognize that, you know, it's like, oh, I, I don't want to keep arguing with people who find my death an acceptable collateral damage for anything. I don't want to keep trying to plan the future with them. So... For me, so much of it is like, how do I create something that's more compelling than that? And the invitation is always available. The door is always open, right? I'm like, anytime you want to um, exit the death cult, like mm. we're going to have a vibrant options mm. for life available over here. But we also have to do the harm reduction of like, and we have to just make sure you don't have access to, you know, too many weapons and stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, well, and also with the, with the row. With the abortion and Roe v. Wade, you know, again, it's such a, isn't it another example? I mean, it's a, it's a hugely consequential move of the icing, right? But it's, yes, but, but it's just sad. to me, the point is 70% of Americans across all of our differences believe that abortion should be possible with some limits. And the conversation 
the life-giving conversation we need to be having is is around those limits and as you say that healthy conflict and that um yeah but but the way the way this the kind of almost the mirage right of the divide mm-hmm. um is another one of these examples of right of the fact that that it's a real reality shift that we're in and that we need yeah, I mean, I would go so far, and I do <laughs> often go so far, mm-hmm. as to call myself a post-nationalist in this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And what I mean when I say that and when I think about that is the way we're holding the concept of nation, that, oh, if we're all citizens of this place, like we're all expected to be able to find a way forward together, no matter what, you know, we will figure it out and we'll find it together. And I think at a certain point, you know, when when you're working as we are currently with people where they're like, I have given up on making decisions from a place of logic, from a place of science, from a place of fact, from a place of impact even, like I'm, I'm, I'm up to something else, right? And that something else causes harm over mm-hmm. and over again. Then I feel like there's, you know, I already feel like this. We live in two nations now, right? And the thing that <laughs> the thing that keeps us tripped up is that we keep trying to operate as if we're in one yeah. and just arguing, you know, like, well, you know, who's going to win this time? Who's going to win that time? But I'm like, it's actually two places. And in it's not good for us, I don't think, to stay delusional about that, which I think is what's happening now. And... So I, I'm I'm not sure what the wake up process looks like. You know, sometimes I'm like, there needs to be a secession. You know, sometimes it's something <laughs> okay, else, right? Yeah, this are um, really don't have. <laughs> this right? is huge. It, yeah, I have to figure out. Like I'm like, I, you know, th- this is the stuff I, I'm thinking about all the time. Is yeah. I'm just like, okay, yeah. like what do you do when you hit that place of like, um, we have some adult conversations to have, um. And by that, I don't mean like that kids could be excluded because I'm like, kids actually get this much better than most of the adults I talk mm-hmm. to. But there's some like, so maybe maybe it's not even adult. Maybe it's like we have some non-negotiable survival conversations we need to have. And so we can't keep getting swept back into conversations that are nonsensical to be in. And like the idea that I would ever argue with a man about what I do with my body, mm-hmm. like it's such a waste of my miraculous life and time mm-hmm. that it's very <laughs> difficult for me to engage. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. like, it's just illogical, right? That's the Vulcan, right? I'm like, it's not logical. I cannot compute that I'm still having to be in that conversation when we have such a short period of time right now to figure out if we can make some massive shifts to become compatible with our planet. And that's what we all should be thinking about, you know, um, is like, oh, right. We only have this one <laughs> planet. Yeah. Um, it's the place that we are compatible with and it's in danger. And that should be our primary conversation. And the fact that it's not yeah. is indicative of how broken, how broken. this yeah. system of, of governance is. Um, and, you know, in some ways, the best thing that can happen for us is some economic falling apart, you know, some de-superpowering, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I feel like the rest of the world already looks at us so differently than they did, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and I, I actually think that's a good thing. You know, like, 
I, I think it doesn't help us when everybody's looking to the U.S. as anything to listen to or follow. Yeah. Um, we're young and we have got a lot to figure out. We are young. <laughs> so, so if you look around, if you, if you think about this generative landscape, this emergent yeah. world that you're part of and that you are speaking to and where there mm-hmm. are conversations happening that social media can't imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I've seen you um, talk about unthinkable thoughts and favorite questions, right? And, and yes. I feel like you are constantly, there's, you're, you're, you're kind of, there's always fresh thought that's emerging in you, which, which is, but, but I also see that it is, it is, it's coming out of presence, right? Not just mm. to, to mm-hmm. what's going on inside your head, but to what you see happening around you, what you're part of, and also always other teachers. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, sometimes I ask people at the end of an interview about what is making you despair and and what is, where are you, what is giving you hope? Where are you finding mm-hmm. hope right now today? And I kind of feel like for you, the question is, what is your unthinkable thought <laughs> and what is your favorite generative question today? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I my unthinkable thought lately has been, will I be okay if humans don't continue? Hmm. Um, for such a long time, I've been really driven by the idea that we have to continue. Like, we simply must. We're so miraculous and incredible. <laughs> um, but lately, yeah, my unthinkable thought has been like, and, you know, but we might not. Like, so far, we're not making the kind of decisions that would lead to continuation. And so can I be, what does that mean, you know? Um, and how do I still live a really meaningful life? Hmm. Um, and, you know, fight till the end, because I do feel like that, you know, I, I'm like, it is miraculous enough that I want to give it my whole life effort. But also, can I also be at peace with what is, which might be that we're not, we're not willing to change. Yeah. yeah. So that's the unthinkable thought. And it's unthinkable because it's so, it really brings up so much grief for me. You yeah. know, like I really love life. Hmm. Um, and then... The question, which is actually from one of my teachers, Grace Lee Boggs, um, that she would always ask when we showed up to sit down and talk with her, is what time is it on the clock of the world? And I like this question. It always makes me kind of deconstruct time <laughs> when, I, mm. when I, you know, I'm like, oh, we're in these like looping patterns, actually. And we're in a pattern that feels familiar in these ways and new in these other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So like we're in another round, you know, for instance, we're in another round of battle around this abortion conversation. Um, What feels new is that we have like the national network of abortion funds and other groups that are more well-recognized and well-funded to help us weather the storm, Mm -hmm. you know? What are some other examples of that? Just Other examples, um, is we're in this interesting moment in black movement where we came through this first massive wave of of Black Lives Matter and lots of black organizing happening. And there's a moment right now that's really tense and intense. And 
it feels like, you know, a lot of internal tension coming out into the light. But for me, I'm like, this is also a moment of deep learning. And what we've never had before are the tools of communication Mm -hmm. and mediation. And like, there's just so many people who are calling each other and being like, I I don't want to see us struggle in this way. You so know? the tension feels like a time loop. The tension feels is super not new. Time loop. It's super familiar. Every yeah. Every time any movement, you know, so it's like not just true for Black movement, but like any movement that starts to get national acclaim and attention. Yeah. You know, there's going to then yeah, be that backlash yeah. that happens within of like, well, who are you to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and also you? the growing right. pains right within the human drama, right? That the growing pains totally. of something that grows. So, and also yeah. there's capitalism is mm-hmm. capitalism. It's such a persistent weight that we forget that it's present. Mm. Right. Mm. So it's like, we'll be caught up in a movement moment of like, yes, things are going great. And we're raising some resources. <laughs> right. And like, yes, you know, it's going great without remembering like, oh, but capitalism means that we're going to fight over these resources as if mm. it all belongs to us rather right. than, you know, getting to work on on just distributing the resources so that we can do the work right yeah so, and so you yeah and yeah. i feel like i interrupted you so you were saying but 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 we have so different tools the, and people that's are, the loop yeah, right yeah but then the different tools that we have this time around first of all is so many more people are paying attention to black movement period yeah right yeah and i think the the vast majority of them are not getting caught up in that sort of movement internal stuff i think the vast majority are just like okay black lives matter (laughs) you know like so i need to orient around that and i think there's so much beautiful work coming out of the movement for black lives and southerners on new ground and the catalyst project and surge for for white folks and allies and Mm. it's just a different time of talking about racial justice and thinking about racial justice that is full of complexity there's so many people asking the questions of what does blackness even mean? Like, yeah, can we yeah. interrogate this in a new way? And how do, how do we keep it intersectional? How do we bring in all aspects of ourselves? So I'm finding it a very exciting time, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. But it's also a fraught time. And we're able to look at it historically more, right? Mm. So, you know, when I talked, uh, I got to be in a conversation with Angela Davis and, you know, she was like, yeah, like we... We dealt with a lot of the same stuff, right? But now y'all know how to take care of each other and yeah. take care of e- yourselves. And, you know, now there's therapy, right? <laughs> I have right. so many people who right. are like movement folks. So I'm like, I don't know where you'd be if you didn't have therapy. But with therapy, right. Right. you could be like, oh, I don't need to take all this personally, yeah. right? <laughs> so yeah. there's just more tools. Yeah. Right. Y- you mentioned Grace Lee Boggs, and I'm yeah. so glad that I sat with her in Detroit. Um, yes. in her last years and um, and also just sat with that community around her. Yeah. And you always, you, you quote her um, on this matter of uh, transformative justice and transformation, yes. right? That we transform ourselves, right? Transform what is it that she world. says? We, tra- we must transform ourselves to transform, to transform the world. The world. Uh, I feel like that is something that this generation in time you know, and your generation and the ones coming after of no, and that is new. That is yes. a new thing to internalize. Maybe yeah. that's kind of what Angela Davis was talking about to you. Yeah, like I, I feel like there is this sense of it's not either or, 
right? It's just that you are a personal front line. Mm. What's happening in your life and in the relationships you have with your family and how you treat people when you're upset with them. You know, I always ask people that when I when I talk about transformative justice, like, are you punishing anyone right now? Hmm. You know, and could that punishment be shifted into a boundary or a request? Is there a courageous conversation that needs to be had? Right. How do you personally begin to practice whatever is in alignment with your largest vision? Abolition is something we practice every day in our lives. Right, liberation, emergent strategy, all of these are things to practice every day. And I guess maybe to bring it back to the first question of spiritual practice, right? To me, that's the ultimate spiritual practice as well. It's not about the bombastic meditation retreat. It's about, can you sit every day? Can you bring mindfulness into every activity? Which also brings us back to fractals. Yes. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> Isn't it absolutely beautiful? Yeah, I mean, you're really, it's an idea, but you're also, you're talking about, I think, I, I keep using this language of how do we really internalize in our bodies that this is what it's about, that what you do, what you practice in your everyday um, is, is what makes is a pattern that is part of that larger pattern that you want to see. That's right. I mean, and there's so much awakening. So I always tell people that you're always practicing things. Mm. So it's not like you go from not practicing to practicing. But it's, are you practicing things on purpose? Mm. Are you practicing things you would want to practice? Or are you practicing what someone else has told you? Um, is the right way to do stuff. And once you start practicing on purpose, then you can actually practice liberation and justice and freedom. And yeah, then it, then I think, you know, you begin to have this contentment that comes from practice, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I know that I won't see total liberation in my lifetime, but I also feel very satisfied with how I'm practicing liberation every single day and in every relationship. And moving towards life. And moving towards life, yeah. (laughs) Life moves towards life, you know. That's Mm. the trick. Mm. Well, Adrian, I'm just grateful you're in the world and loved really diving into you and will continue to do so. And um, we'll read Octavia Butler over the summer. (laughs) Maybe I'll call you up. I'm so excited to hear what you think. Like. (laughs) I do okay. want to hear what you think okay. after you read her work. And, okay. um, you know, the, I'll just tell you, but Toshi Regan and I have a podcast. So if you want to listen to a podcast as you're on the journey, we are reading her work oh. um, chapter by chapter okay. and just like studying her. <laughs> okay. So Octavia's Parables is our, our little I guess I saw that. study group. Okay. Also, I have a question. Would you please impose a flight ban on me? I'm imposing a flight ban on you right now. <laughs> when you said that, I thought um, that's what I need yeah. too. <laughs> and so let me tell you how it works. So okay. you can choose to travel a few times a year, right? Okay. Only for love or friendship. <laughs> and if something can be done virtually, mm-hmm. you do it virtually, right? Okay. Um, and especially if it's related to like earth, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> especially if it's like, this oh, is also like, about like, practicing we what we preach. We don't need any more like in-person conferences where we like throw away 3 billion plastic water bottles talking about how much we love the planet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna meditate on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Um, we're gonna be airing it uh, in June when we okay. are winding down the weekly show. Um, That's a good month. So, and congratulations on that decision to make that change. Thank you. I hope it opens a lot of space up. Well, it will. Do things. you know? You know what I mean? Like it will. That's what it does. It, I, you know, in pleasure yeah. activism, I say that your no makes the way for your yes. Uh huh. And I'm always like, people think I'm joking, but it's true. <laughs> like, you really uh-huh. have to let things end uh-huh. and die and complete. Uh-huh. And then, you know, more becomes possible. Well, blessings to you. Thank you to you as well. Um, and so I'm going to hand you back to Zach. And, all right. Or, you know, I'm sure you've been talking to Julie, and she'll keep you up on all of this. And, um, yeah, just lovely, lovely to meet you in this So way. good to meet you and talk with you. Yeah. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.